Welcome to the Division G podcast series launched in 2014 by the ARA Graduate Student Executive Committee. These podcasts provide an added medium to highlight scholarship, discuss contemporary issues, and start a conversation among DivG members and the creator community. Throughout the year, we have released podcasts leading up to the annual spring conference. Today's podcast is on culturally responsive pedagogy. We are excited to share with you a conversation between three amazing scholars and our esteemed graduate colleagues, Arianju Aditola from Clemson University and Taylor Albright from the University of Southern California. Enjoy the conversation. We welcome Dr. Lori Santamaria from the University of Auckland, Dr. Django Paris from Michigan State University, and Dr. Tonika Orange from the University of California, Los Angeles, for a conversation about culturally responsive and sustaining pedagogy. As we prepare for the 2016 AERA annual meeting in Washington, D.C., we see the need for research that centralizes pedagogy that connects the experiences of students' lives to the classroom. We see culturally responsive, sustaining pedagogy as compelling and necessary research that draws on the strengths of students' linguistic, cultural, and personal identity dimensions as critical research in education. CRP humanizes curriculum, learning, and schooling, and can help disrupt the policy narrative of common standards and objective curriculum, creating opportunities for pedagogies that positively impact diverse students entering classrooms today. With that, let's have our participants introduce themselves. Hello, everyone. I am Tanika Orange. I'm faculty at UCLA Center X. I teach in the teacher ed program and in the principal leadership institute there. I also work closely with the Center for Culturally Responsive Teaching and Learning, which is based here in Los Angeles. It's an organization that basically provides professional development to educators across the country around culturally linguistic and responsive practices that support all educators and support students. Now, I received my doctorate degree from the University of Pittsburgh with a focus on administration and policy studies and evaluation of urban schools. Uh, hi, everybody. I'm uh, Django Paris, um, Associate Professor of Language and Literacy here at Michigan State University. My research and teaching center on understanding and joining uh, in hopefully humanizing and decolonizing ways uh, the language, literacies, and literatures of young people of color in the context of demographic and social change. I got my uh, doctorate at, at Stanford University, although um, I was an undergrad at uh, UC Berkeley, so I always have to rep the bears. Kia ora koutou. Before I begin, um, I just want to start by extending heartfelt thanks to you, Eric, and each one of you on the AERA Graduate Student Executive Committee for inviting me to participate in this important talk. I also want to thank you, my esteemed colleagues and peers, Dr. Django Paris and Dr. Tanika Orange. I think we're co-creators of the transmutation of what has been called culturally responsive or relevant pedagogy in the past. My name is Lori Santamaria. I'm currently the head of School of Learning Development and Professional Practice and Associate Professor of Educational Leadership at the University of Auckland in Aotearoa, New Zealand. My alma mater is the University of Arizona, but the school I currently head is in the Faculty of Education. I think it's important for me to end by sharing that my research interests and publication topics are on leadership practices and indigeneity that promote cultural linguistic diversity and academic achievement at all levels to serve systemically underserved learners. Our first question that we have for you is, for those who are listening but may not be as familiar with culturally responsive pedagogies, can you describe how you situate it in your research? 
for me, culture defines who we are, our beliefs, motivations, how we engage um, and communicate with one another. You know, it shapes the way we think and how we see the world. And so because of that, you know, I think about when you're investigating um, and researching on how to best support teachers and influence learning and policy, that culture has to be a dominant factor at the table. Too often it has never been a consideration and it's surely not um, a large consideration in my opinion now. It continues to put us in the narrative that we have today and the narrative that we've had since before I was actually even born. Same groups don't get the opportunities. We know that. We know this story over and over again. And the opportunities that they do receive are often couched to mere dominant cultural views of appropriate ways to learn, succeed, speak, engage, how you get motivated, all those. So to me, as search are trying to think about how to affect change in teaching and policy and in learning, for those students and educators specifically who have been marginalized, culture has to be the lens of the work. So no matter what I do, everything I think about and how I go about doing it in research is situated through the lens of culturally responsiveness. Um, I, yeah, I could um, build on, on Dr. Orange there. I, I really appreciate that response. And, and also thanks to Dr. Santa Maria for reaching out to all of us and just thanking us for being here. Thank you as well, Dr. Santa Maria. This is important work. So I'll also be very brief if I can be. It's a big question, but, you know, at base, I'm interested in, you know, teaching and learning contexts that value youth and com- communities that have been and, and continue to be um, largely devalued in educational spaces. What some of us have, have, have thought about as asset or strength-based or resource pedagogies, right? They give us a way to understand and practice, sometimes in small ways at the classroom level, um, sometimes across schools, across dis- districts, across communities, such a valuing, a valuing that I think many of us are after. More specifically, they give us a way, so uh, when we when we situate and, and, and make culture central in teaching and learning, particularly the cultural practices, activities, communities of uh, young people of color in my work, they give us a way to resist what remain white, middle-class, cis-hetero, patriarchal, ableist monolingual norms of of, uh, educational achievement. And so, you know, culturally sustaining pedagogy, for instance, says that we're going to center students, their practices and activities in critical ways beyond uh, what Toni Morrison called the white gaze. So beyond thinking about uh, white norms, we uh, can think of educational spaces that center the norms of our communities, and that doesn't make them mean that that, uh, we're uncritical in that centering. We need to ever be critical but it does mean we're not looking, uh, measuring ourselves through the what, what Du Bois called the, the lens of, of contempt and pity. Mm. Yeah. Well, for me, culturally responsive pedagogies, and my fingers are in the air in quotes, have been present in my work <laughs> as a means of ground. As they've been in my work as a means of grounding my scholarship for nearly 20 years, right? So this work is relevant to my own experiences with growth inequities in education as a Spanish-speaking girl or female woman now of African-American and American Indian um, Choctaw descent. So I was schooled in public and American schools in the U.S. and in Zaragoza, Spain, where I grew up. So when I was at the University of Arizona, when I was pursuing a, just a basic bilingual teaching credential, I was exposed to Dr. Luis Mole's Funds of Knowledge and Dr. Gloria Latson Billings' work on culturally responsive pedagogies. And finally, for me, education fell into place. My academic world fell into place. So their work resonated with my experiences and vision for a new and different educational future. And from them um, and others, I discovered the building blocks on which to situate my contributions to transforming education into a more liberatory experience, resulting in transcendence for underserved people, right? Systemically underserved people in the U.S. and the world. 
So I have to say that nearly every, I went back and looked, nearly every piece of scholarship that I've created since 1998 makes reference to this kind of intersectional grounding and a mm-hmm. seminal notion of creating, yeah, and a seminal notion of creating spaces for learning that honors individuals and what people bring to the table when they come to school, valuing their identity, where additive holistic inclusivity is the norm and not the exception. So I don't even know what, what the white gaze is. I think I threw it away a long time ago. So if I'm not working for these ideals, in my estimation of myself as a scholar, I'm not working at all. Yeah. I think you do know what the white gaze is. Um, it's about how, how you've chosen to disrupt it or, as you say, throw it away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. Dr. Santa Maria, you talked a little bit about your experiences and your graduate school experiences and how that has influenced your research trajectory and what you do now. If Dr. Orange and Dr. Paris could also speak to how it is that you each came to this work, if it was during graduate school, what was it about that experience that led you to your current research? You know, I'm going to have to say that I really did not come to this work through graduate school. I came through this work, honestly, I think out of a sense of anger from my own past personal experiences and work experiences. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, and it was back in the day when it actually was a thriving city city where you could walk down the street and see African-American businesses thriving and the community was thriving. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were like a, a whole community. And then as soon as, you know, the economic downturn happened for the city, you just saw it deteriorate completely. And it bothered me tremendously. And I went to a predominantly white school where the way I talked, the way I spoke, the way I looked was always in question and always made me feel self-doubtful about myself. That, that white gaze I'm thinking about that Dr. Paris and they were just talking about. I mean, just, like, I, I mean, it was palpable for me. I could feel it. And I consistently, consistently grew angry. I grew angry as I went to graduate school. I went to I received my master's from Teachers College, Columbia University, and I remember sitting in class and very upset at higher ed not making me feel comfortable, where I'm st- I still felt uncomfortable that what I had to contribute was not beneficial or, or, or taken as, um, as, as important. And it was because of, I think, the anger and the constantly being thrown aside, from my perspective, that I grew to say that, you know, the work that I want to center in is how do I regain what I think I grew up in? which was this African-American community that was supportive, that did, you know, tell me that I'm beautiful, that I am smart, that the way my grandparents spoke in their African-American language is validated and affirmed consistently. So with that, that's how I got into the work. And I was lucky enough to go to a graduate school that supported every single thing that I did. started by getting involved in African-centered education, and I did my dissertation on Malcolm X Academy, which was an empowered school, they called them back then, in Detroit, Michigan, that served, that was, centered around African-centered um, curriculum and instruction. And from there, I came to Los Angeles, and, and, and the cultural response of pedagogy grew out of that, understanding that the importance of race and culture, it matters completely, but looking at culture specifically and how, unlike race, it's not static, and how folks move in and out of culture, and how that just helped me, uh, I guess, taper that anger into something that I thought was topical that I could, that, that I could transform schools and, and educators with. So that's how I came into it. Yeah, so um I mean I, I would I would uh you know second and third um Dr. Santa Maria was talking about being at the University of Arizona and coming into 
uh, contact with um, uh, Luis Mole and Norma Gonzalez and, and their colleagues' work mm-hmm. in the Funds of Knowledge, and, uh, and you know, and, and, and some of that crucial um, and, and in some ways um, at this point now earlier work in, in that resource and asset pedagogy's traditions. And then just hearing Dr. Orange talk about her own experiences in schooling, I think for the three of us as young people of color growing up in U.S. schools, the things we're saying that we've worked to, to disrupt, discard, move through, revise, decolonize are things that, that we lived through in K-12 schooling and we lived through in, 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 in some you know, ways in graduate school and we continue to live through as professors. And so one of the things about coming to this work for me, it's 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 about that sort of anchor of being a, a student of color in public schools. Uh, my father, a black Jamaican, born and raised in Kingston. My mom, a white American, raised in California. And all of the things that, that that's entailed that I've written about um, some in other places. I would say that that in terms of my graduate school experience, in many ways it was it was wonderful and and uh, and and enriching and um, and helped me do the work that I'm doing. But it wasn't automatically so, right? It, um, Stanford, like all the schools we went to, is a predominantly white, predominantly and historically mm-hmm. white institution that was you know built at the exclusion of of the bodies and knowledges of people of color. And so such spaces can often be difficult, right, for us. Yeah. And so I was fortunate enough to have uh, adv- you know underneath the ball as an advisor. I worked yeah. with John Rickford in linguistics <laughs> and Guadalupe Valdez, also in education, and then had a critical uh, white ally, Andrea Lunsford, uh, on my committee as well. And so, and that that is to say, you know, much of of, of what I do was was fed uh, through my graduate school experience, but that was in some spaces and certainly not all. And so I think um, being very, having the mentors and also. Um, uh, working very strategically to think about where where are the courses and the people and the work that can help feed you, continue to challenge you, right, but also help feed you is really important. Thank you all for that response. Part of me right now is really trying to process and think through what each of you said because it's very powerful. And as a graduate student, I'm really thinking about, you know, my current position and how to use that wisely and right. to not allow, you know, certain emotions to interfere with my progress where I can fight the battle in different ways. Mm-hmm. This year's ARA conference theme is public scholarship to educate diverse democracies. What role does culturally responsive pedagogy play? And specifically, how can scholars leverage their research and voice to educate diverse democracies? I mean, I, I, I think it plays a very important role in in um, the conversation at AERA. I think that when it comes to the, the notion of leveraging the research, understanding that for folks who are coming into the work, that it is not just about the research, it's also about the authenticity behind it. And that, you know, the, the research will continue and it will evolve and it will continue to go on. But how it sustains itself and what it looks like I think lies in the authenticity of eventually what we do and how we put that into practice. The more folks can be authentic in what they do and push what they do into not just the theory behind it, but the practice of it, because folks are looking for real tangible ways to make changes for for, for folks, for, for students of color. And without that authenticity and giving them the tangible um, resources to do that, then it just becomes um, another thing that's left off in space that only the the theorists and the higher edu- education, you know, folks talk about. So, um, I've been, gosh, this was a good, really good question. It really you pushed me, and I appreciate the push. I've been recently humbled around the notion, the language around culturally responsive leadership, and I've been in the New Zealand 
um, space, which is away from you all since 2012. But um, I recently published a book called Culturally Responsive Leadership, and and now I want to take the title and I want to throw it. I want I want to toss it away because I <laughs> seriously I've entered into a state of unlearning in New Zealand. I'm repositioning myself. I'm deconstructing what I've been researching and writing about for the last 15 years. And just like Django, just like your your provocative 2012 essay on culturally sustaining right. pedagogy and your 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 recent Harvard Ed Review piece, one of my realizations is that actually, if a critical mass of diverse peoples and allies are just looking at educating diverse democracies to be more culturally responsive, we might have failed before we've even started. Because there it is. For, yeah. In my opinion, yeah, yeah, like you, you know, because that familiar and well-trodden pathway, it just keeps dominant ideologies in positions of power, the producing and maintaining and sustaining right. tired and, you know, ineffective systems, right? Right. So I think yeah. I just want to say before I, before I give it over to you, Django, that what I think we're asserting here is that what's required at this time is a, like, I hate to use the stupid term, I mean, not stupid, but I hate to use the term paradigm shift, but we need a repositioning from the core. So we've been, we've been in a state of reparation of a broken system when what we really need to do is to design a new system altogether. And that's why I try to use the word transmutation. We need to move from transformational paradigms to transmuting, changing, and replacing broken systems of education with ones that actually work, just what, what, what Tanika was saying. I think as long as we continue to engage in culturally responsive pedagogies as we have, and I'm not, and I love all of our our predecessors, and I truly know and love them. We've got to move away from. We've got to change this. We've got to move our stuff from the periphery of the educational canon to the center. And this way of being, culture is not an outlier. It's something. It's not something that warrants a response. Culture needs to be at the center. And I've learned a lot in New Zealand. I'm writing about that now. But I love this. This is the way that I believe scholars need to transmute ideology and practice associated with culturally responsive pedagogy. And apparently I'm in good company with my colleagues here. Yeah, no, I, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll definitely think about this and build, build on, on, on what you were sharing there, um, Dr. Santa Maria. I appreciate it. I think you're, you're exactly right in that it's, it's, not, it's not really the frameworks, right, or, or even what they were called um, over time. Um, and you had mentioned the the loving critique that um, H. Samuel Lehm and I wrote in and and uh, published in the Harvard Ed Review. And as um, yeah. you know, as Gloria Latson Billings wrote in 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 that same symposium, culturally sustaining pedagogy uses culturally relevant pedagogy as the place where the beat drops, right? And it doesn't imply that yeah. the original was de- de- deficient, but it speaks to the changing needs of dynamic systems. And one of the things That's I right. think that we're 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 coming to terms with is that just like school integration has a always been a one-way affair, right? They weren't firing um, uh, white teachers and putting white kids in black schools. They were firing black and brown teachers and putting black and brown kids into white schools. And so um, uh, that sort of, uh, that that has been really the the, the ethos and the uptake, responsive and relevant and and culturally appropriate and so on and so forth and funds of knowledge. And so these sort of interventions, um, and and we remain all on the same team, of course. And that's the team, you know, for, for cultural justice um, for communities that, that um, have, have can continue to, you know, suffer cultural injustice. And so that's that's that idea of sustaining, and I don't know that that will be useful for very long, And, and but that's less important to me than, you know, culturally sustaining pedagogy being useful for very long than this move to think about um, yeah. a, a, a real centering and a mm. self that communities have been involved in uh, forever. Right. This isn't. It, it's not new that communities have been doing this work um, through teaching and learning. I, I think of um, Lomawima and, and McCarty's book, To Remain Indian, right. a century of, of, yes. of native schooling in the U.S., uh, for instance. 
I think that's really important, right? And so public scholarship to educate diverse democracies, you know, it, it makes it sound like we have a diverse, quote-unquote, democracy. You know, we, we do, we have a very, um, you know, racially, ethnically, linguistically diverse society. I don't really use the term diverse or diversity much anymore. But it, but it's not a democracy that's that's working for all of uh, all concerned. And so I think that those are the stakes, you know? Yes. Yeah. And what Dr. Orange was talking about in terms of authenticity, you know, one of the questions is who are we doing this work with and why are we doing it, right? Are we doing it um, to get doctorates or to get tenure or to get, or are we doing it because we're members of communities, we care about communities and we're working with communities. And I think those are different versions of what academic life is set out to be. No, I mean, I I think about the conflict also that um, Dr. Parrish just talked about for me, just thinking about as as I engage in the work. It's always twofold for me. It's it's the work of my, my own personal belief systems and 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 how I want to center myself in the work. And then it's also I you know come from the angle as a mother of two African American little girls. And mm-hmm. the, the the mind is consistently shifting on again just like um, Dr. Sacramento what you were saying about what these spaces look like. And you know I'm always talking about I you know I hate to use the cliche words of dismantling or disrupting or tearing down. But how do we restart, which is, you know, I think back when I was in my 20s, which is why I said, I just want, I'm being honest, I just want all black schools. I just want schools to focus on this. I mean, because I, I just felt the uncentering. I felt that it, there, there wasn't just enough space for folks to be who they are. And it drives the way I think about the research I do. I, it's drives from my point of what I believe is good education or what it, 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 it my, my, my belief system around education and then what I believe is good for my daughters, who happen to be people of color, who, mm-hmm. as as you said, Dr. Paris, do not live in um, a diverse democracy by any means. And how do I, I how do I get them to a point where they're able to um, sustain who they are and understand who they are and still work in a society that is not a diverse democracy? So I, I'm consistently <laughs> thinking about all those things when I'm um, working and thinking about culturally responsive pedagogy and what it will look like over years of time. So now we're switching to some questions that are coming from a graduate student perspective. So how do you promote culturally responsive pedagogy or even this level of transmutation when we're working in settings where the faculty may not be aware of these issues, they might even be resistant to changing their practices or changing their assumptions? Yeah, so I'm going to answer your question. What's, I'm going to have a, I have a question too. I mean, how does one get someone to change, right? And how do we identify the source of the resistance without overlaying our own assumptions? So I think it's, it's challenging. Um, it's, it's not for the faint-hearted, but I think that scholars of color or scholars to identify with scholars of color who engage research, teaching and service like, like we do here on this panel, you know, we, we, we can do it, but we have to sustain each other. I think we have to actually work together and build each other up because the change has to come from within. Um, so in my own work in applied critical leadership research, the, our findings indicate that people need to actually make a decision and they need to choose to change. It's an internal thing as well as an external thing. And we can do it by building relational trust and inviting people on our journey to begin exposing them to examples of injustice in education to help to influence their shift. You know what I'm saying? But once they begin these processes, then it has, it's, a long, it's a long haul. It's actually a long haul. There's not a silver bullet. There's not a magic formula or a quick fix to the kind, this kind of shifting. And what we found in our work is that in some cases when critically conscious leaders 
find themselves in leadership positions. We are sometimes able to administratively remove people from the bus <laughs> and bring in others who are on board. But you know, it's it's hard. I mean, I'm, I I don't want to I don't want to pretend that that I I personally don't have to refresh and recharge my batteries and get around people to help me along the journey because you know I, I don't want to make it sound like it's so hard that you can't do it either. I'm just trying to say that it takes commitment and heart and like holistic body, mind, spirit kind of stuff in order to really promote this kind of discourse. I want to support everything that Dr. Santa Maria has just said, and I don't want to reiterate it because it was just so well said. It's very important to sustain one another in the work. That's extremely important. It is not a magic bullet. It's not all of a sudden. It is time-consuming. It is, just like you said, it's not for the pain of heart. I always go on with the mindset for those who are not on board with the way I think uh, is that my, my, my goal isn't here to, to help you change your mind. I'm here to present the information, and, 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 it, and it's a process, like you said. I, that my, I don't go on with that mindset already, and it becomes a point that every time I sit at the table, and I believe that everyone who believes in the work, when they sit at the table, that folks already know what I bring when I come. So they'll say, Oh, here comes Dr. Orange. I know what she's going to say. She's going to talk some, something about equity and culture or whatever. Here she comes again. And I, I'm proud of that badge. That's okay. And if it makes folks uncomfortable, I think I've done a little bit. You know, I feel a little bit better. Because it, 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 it is uncomfortable work for a lot of folks. But it's very comfortable, I think, if you really want the work to, to be done and you really want to move it forward, that you have to be comfortable at consistently making sure that you bring it to the table no matter what. And and I yeah and I I would agree and and not add um, too much here. But I think you know, in terms of thinking about increasing numbers, um, those things can be really important, right? So so you thinking about who faculty are, who graduate students are, who teachers and teacher preparation are, ways to right recruit and sustain um, students of color, faculty of color, graduate students of color, teachers of color, right? Um, other folks that are marginalized by systemic inequalities in our programs. Um, and so, you know, things like hiring cohorts and and um, and thinking about cohorts really, really um, seriously. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's important also to. Um, there's lots of ways to, as as we've been talking about here, to work on the capacity of folks that are already here. One one thing that 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 I've found um, uh, started to find really useful is to to center on, um, if if especially in work with faculty as well as work with graduate students, is to center on their students. Right, and so what do faculty need to do to sustain students of color, um, graduate students or teachers in their in their program? What do they need to do to think about um, what those teachers or graduate students will know, or say their teachers will know when they're in in working in schools? Right, and so and you know so we just had a session here at Michigan State on um, with faculty on sustaining um, doctoral students of color, and so looking at people with track records of advising and 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 working in supervisory roles or research, you know, uh, as uh, uh, primary investigators, you know, on research projects and as instructors. And so thinking about, you know, as teachers, thinking about people who have done this really well and then sharing those practices with our colleagues. Um, and we've, we found it to be pretty pretty useful and pretty helpful. Um, and also it's it's interesting when, when, when we're talking, when you when you both were talking, um, Dr. Orange and Santa Maria, you were talking about sustaining. So we don't say we have to be responsive to each other. We say we have to sustain each other. And I think that talks about this, um, the, the outcome of the work we're looking for, right, mm-hmm. it, which is to, to remain whole, to come in whole and to remain whole in ever more critical ways rather than seeing ourselves or others as broken on the way in and then um, somehow are going to become whole by by um by you know um assimilating to other ways of being
To build on that, you all started to provide some some advice, some insights for graduate students who are doing this work. So to close, what words of advice would you give to graduate students who are addressing these issues of justice, culture, language, pedagogy through their research and through praxis? I'll start. This is Lori Santa Maria. You know, if I could go back and give myself advice, it would have it, it would be to do exactly what I did. My doctorate was in bilingual special education rehabilitation and school psychology. That is the title. However, the, my advisors were not, they did not know about culture or language. And so I, saw, I was on one floor of the University of Arizona. I saw, I went up to the, the floor where they were doing language and culture, where Richard Ruiz and Luis Mole were located, and I knocked mm. on their doors and said, hi. I'm doing this, and what I, I, need to, I need to know what you're doing because the stuff that I'm doing, there's crossover, and no one's teaching me the stuff that I need to know. You have to seek out people who are interested in issues of justice, culture, language, and pedagogy. You've got to find the people. They're there. You have to go to places like AERA. You have to read the work. You have to read a lot and reach out to the people that are re- reading the stuff that, that, that builds you up. Do not waste your time reading stuff that doesn't resonate with you. You don't have a lot of time. You've got to find stuff that resonates with you. It's like you don't have energy packets to be doing stuff that doesn't resonate. So that's, that's what I would suggest. And don't be afraid. Be, be, be encouraged and find us so that we can help you. Because, you know, you can't do it by yourself. And you can't do you, – don't go don't, – don't not be true to yourself. We're in a different time now. You can be true to yourself into your passion of what you want to do. You don't have to do stuff you don't want to do anymore. That's what I believe. No, I would say exactly the same thing. I would say it's very important to find people who support you in the work. And it, sometimes it may not be the folks that are sitting right on the university, um, in the university, the, your, your specific university walls. It could be outside of that. I would also say that the other thing is just to, just to really be mindful to take care of self. And, mm. Uh, as much as we have to make sure that we validate and affirm the folks that we work with, you have to validate and affirm yourself very often when you're in a space that sometimes may seem uncomfortable and not forgiving and not helpful at times. Um, and it's, so it's important for you to find a way to validate and affirm who you are. You always feel, as Dr. Perry says, like, that you always feel whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I would just, um, I would just, you know, second and third, third these. Just remember what you're, what, what. You know, I think it's important that we remember what our anchors are, and um, and and don't let go of those anchors. Even if, of course, we 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 change and um, and deepen and hopefully become ever more critical across you know a variety of of contexts and dimensions. But one thing that can be really helpful is is knowing, as I think we've all talked about, that you're not alone in the work, and that people have been engaged in this work for centuries, and that in order to join those traditions, you know, which many of us may be part of in, in various ways, but sometimes joining those. You know, in the academic context, means a lot of reading and a lot of study, right? I had to read deeply about you know four decades at least of asset-based pedagogical research to kind of think about what what we might need to do to to keep moving forward in terms of culturally sustaining pedagogy. Um, and then lastly, yeah, I think that you know taking courses that feed you is really important. Um, finding spaces that feed you, and that can be again outside your department, um, outside your college, and sometimes or school, and and, and sometimes you know 
in places like the Division G Graduate Student Association or whatever it, it may be, finding those other spaces to, to feed what it is that you want to do. But I would agree, we, 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 we can't afford to wait, right? And Audre Lorde um, had, has, has a poem where she says, in the bruising, bruising fist of challenge, the future does not tarry. And so we really have to think about the stakes and the now and not waiting for things like the degree or tenure or this or that, but rather how can we, you know, sustain and be sustained by the work over time like our communities have been doing for centuries. Thank you. We've had a powerful conversation today. We'd like to thank our invited scholars for participating in our podcast and extend our appreciation to all of you in our audience for joining us. You can find links and more information on Drs. Orange, Paris, and Santa Maria on the AERA Division G blog at aeradivg.wordpress.com. We have featured two publications that we encourage you to read in order to learn more about their research and to inform your own research and practice. To participate in an extended conversation of these pertinent topics, please follow us on Twitter at ARADivG and use the hashtag DivGChat to add your perspectives to this ongoing conversation. We look forward to your ideas and insights and to your attendance at our next podcast.